income smoothing and knowing, okay, here's what's going on with this particular client and what are they going to be doing for the next five years? What are the exit plans with these buildings? What's the, what's the strategy that they have already? And then how can we line up what's going on on the tax side to really take the most advantage of what we already know is going to be happening? You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Catherine Tyndall and Skylar Christian. Uh, They are tax professionals and partners at Dominion Enterprise Services. Dominion is a CPA firm that specializes in advanced tax reduction strategy and proactively works with their clients to reduce what they pay in taxes while supporting their greater wealth building life journeys. Legally reducing your tax liability is one of the key benefits to owning real estate. So I'm going to shut up and just learn from these two. Catherine, Skylar, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Matt. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What is your favorite ice cream? Catherine, we'll start with you. So I've actually got a pint of green tea ice cream waiting for me in the fridge. So I'm looking forward to digging into that after this uh, conversation. Is that like healthy because it has antioxidants and and all of that? (laughs) Is it healthy for me to eat a whole pint? Um, Yes, I would say so. Yeah, yeah. I've heard tea is healthy. (laughs) I've heard tea is healthy. We'll go with it. Yeah, I'm Uh, fine with that. Skylar, what about you? I'm a big fan of, I'm going to be specific with the brand. I'm going to say specifically Haagen-Dazs, the coffee flavor. Okay. Oh, yes. That one's excellent. I, um, I got some of these espresso chocolate beans the other day, and I've eaten way too many of them, and they're delicious. <laughs> so I'm, I'm definitely a coffee and chocolate fan. Um, good. So what's, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What, is, uh, was it, what do you all do today? Yeah, so um, I guess I can pick up the pick up the answer on that one. So basically we're a, we're a specialty CPA firm and our specialty is in tax planning work. So we work with clients that have a good amount of complexity going on in their income portfolio. So people with real estate investments, closely held businesses, a combination of things that they require planning work. And so we work with them to do, to deploy strategies and take advantage of everything that they can So that when it comes to the end of the year and we're filing tax returns, we already know how everything's going to shake out and we've reduced their actual tax payments to as low as possible, you know, given what's available for them in the, in the tax code and and court cases, et cetera. So. Perfect. Well, let's start there. Tell our listeners a little bit about the difference between planning and filing, because this is something I thought all of the great benefits of taxes and, and benefits of real estate, owning real estate, hired a CPA. April came around, I gave them all my books and they were like, okay, here's your tax bill. And and I got none of those. So help us understand this idea of planning for your taxes versus filing for your taxes. Yeah. So, and I think there's another distinction in there too, um, where people do planning for taxes. So just like knowing what your tax bill is going to be and doing a projection, that's kind of one piece of it that people do in advance. But the work that we really specialize in is taking clients through a process where we holistically assess what's going on with how they earn their income, how they're deducting things, how the entities are structured to see if there's ways that we can modify through modifying entity structures or modifying their behaviors to get them to qualify for things or get tax credits, et cetera, so that by the time it comes to filing the tax return, which is really the historical record of what happened during the year, they you know, they already, we already know where that's going to end up because we've been proactive and kind of with them during the year while they're doing things, while they're executing transactions so that we know the tax exposure and we know, you know, how things fell out from what happened. So um, I think I had an interesting encounter recently with a, a prospective client where they, you know, they had talked to a 1031 intermediary. They even paid them the fee but they weren't working with the CPA at the same time. And so they failed to execute the exchange properly. And so when they came to me, they're like, oh, I just want to know what the bill is. And it was, it was really frustrating for me as a tax planner to be like, oh, like if we had just found a replacement property, like if we had just executed that, you would be looking at 
no tax bill versus it was like a 200K plus tax bill this guy was facing just because he didn't execute properly. So a lot of what we do with clients is more on that side of helping them execute things properly, helping them foresee what the tax implications of their actions are going to be so they can make decisions knowing the full ramifications of what's going on. Yeah, Catherine, I feel like you're living a conversation that I had back in April because I was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, 1031, I'll sell this property. I already know I'm going to roll it in there. I, yeah. I closed on the deal. The, the money was wired into my bank account. And then that's when I had the call of, no, 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 no. You've already touched that money. Uh, it no longer qualifies. And now I'm going to have a nice bill from Uncle Sam in April because of that. So um, the one thing I want to touch on too is that you mentioned uh, the income you make and how you make that income. Uh, mm-hmm. I know some of our listeners out there might be W-2 employees, some might be self-employment. I guess, Skylar, can you talk to us a little bit about the differences between the money you make versus how you make it? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the concepts in tax planning, um, and I would just distill it again, everything Catherine said, I would distill it into two, two concepts. One is proactivity versus reactivity. And two is looking at things holistically instead of just siloed. And so- With that in mind, one of the things we look at is the character of the income. And in tax speak, uh, what character of the income means is that each type of income that that you earn and how you earn it is going to be taxed potentially at a different rate, first of all. And second of all, it's going to be able to be offset or not by other types of income or deductions. And so the, the way you make your income is very, very important. One of the most inefficient ways to make income is through your wages. Just straight W-2 is a very inefficient way, character of income, because it's taxed at uh, the highest rates, which are the ordinary rates. Not only that, but it's also subject to payroll tax. And so both from an income tax and a payroll tax purpose uh, purposes, uh, wages are very inefficient. Um, as you go down the line, there's other types of income. You know, You have retirement income. Um, you have uh, interest income. Those aren't subject to payroll tax, but they're still subject to high uh, ordinary rates. Uh, you have capital gains, which, of course, you know, are taxed at, at a lower rate, at least for the time being, pending any further legislation that uh, Congress is contemplating. Um, and so, and, and then you have a bunch of other things in between. I, mean, I won't go into the weeds on all the different types of incomes, but one of the ones you may have heard of as a real estate investor is Section 1250 income, which is depreciation recapture income, which is something that is a particular category of income that is recaptured upon the sale of a property um, because you took depreciation on it. So all that to say, you, you really do need to look holistically at your income sources in order to assess what this is going to look like for tax purposes. You can't simply say, I'm going to plug my income for this year into, you know, a, a tax projection calculator and it's going to spit out, you know, X amount of tax. It's just simply much more complicated than that. And so again, this is why looking at things holistically and proactively, um, we think we can help people uh, in, in looking at the full picture of how to reduce their tax burden overall. Yeah. And I think that idea of uh, ordinary income versus capital gains income versus dividend income versus um, basically self-employment income, there's a whole bunch of taxes associated with that. A book I'll plug around that is Cashflow Quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki. I think he does a good job of talking through um, if you're a W-2 employment versus getting income from being self-employed versus your investment income. Um, the common question I often get when talking about taxes is this idea of an LLC and should I LLC or not LLC? And I guess Skylar, just continuing with you there, what's your general answer on that? And then can you kind of talk through the different structures there are out there for people that have properties and want to structure it into a business? The answer is it depends. Um, <laughs> that's my general answer. Um, so I tend to think it really depends on the scale of your operation. I think that if you're just getting started and you just own one property and you have good insurance on it, um, you know, there's no real harm in it being owned outside of an LLC. However, as you grow and expand, um, what we like to see is people consolidating their holdings um, and 
there's a concept of uh, called aggregation, which we can get into later, which is uh, related to the real estate professional designation for tax purposes. But essentially what it does is it helps you to take advantage of you know, some of the really unique tax savings that are available to real estate investors by grouping your real estate activities and aggregating them. The LLC structure is just an easier way in which you can do that. Um, and this is all apart from considerations of keeping properties separate in one single LLC for each property for legal purposes or protection, you know, uh, liability protection purposes. We're only talking taxes. So, you know, there are many benefits to the LLC with respect to liability protection and segregating them them like that. But then there's also benefits, you know, uh, on a tax side in terms of, um, you know, the cleanliness of aggregating things. Um, and then if you have um, if you have partners as well, the, the the clean nature with which you can have one single holding company that holds a, a variety of investment types. Yeah. So the answer I typically hear on this is that an LLC is really for legal protection more than as tax status yep. protection, because if you have a pass through entity, then essentially whatever you are and the properties are going to flow back down to you as an LLC. But um, I get over my ski tips when we're talking about this idea of S-Corp versus LLC. Can you maybe help us understand a little bit of the differences there? Absolutely. S-Corp is generally not used as a vehicle for owning real estate. Um, and part of the reason for that is because of the way in which uh, it, it actually has more restrictions on a, the type of owners and the number of owners uh, in, in an S corporation, you're limited to, to 100 domestic owners and they can't be certain types of entities. So there are more restrictions there. Number two, all distributions of cash have to be exactly corresponding to the, the stock that you own, the percentage of stock that you own in the S corporation. Um, and then number three, it's um, in terms of losses and taking losses against your basis and your what's called recourse or qualified non-recourse debt, it's not as favorable in terms of that. So for those reasons, LLC is strongly recommended for real estate investors over an S-corporation. S-corporations are, are great entities. Um, we have plenty of clients and have worked with plenty of people in setting them up, but they're usually for like an operating business. And they can be a very powerful tool for like a close family held, you know, manufacturing operation. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, you also mentioned the idea of a qualified real estate professional. So Catherine, um, coming back to you, what is a qualified real estate professional? What qualifies for that? And then some of the benefits associated with that? Yeah, so it's a special provision in the tax code, basically, that when you reach a certain number of hours of active participation in real estate, you get this, you can qualify for this special special designation called a you know, real estate professional. And what that does is it triggers the rest of your real estate activity instead of it being treated as passive is then treated as active. And so if your properties are kicking a lot of kicking off a lot of depreciation like paper losses, it makes it able for you to offset that income, you know, offset those depreciation paper losses against active income if you're, you know, making money through a brokerage or something like that. So it, it helps, um, you know, smooth out across your portfolio, but you're only eligible for it if you meet certain hour requirements and you really do have to be kind of full-time in, in the real estate world. There are a lot of different activities that qualify towards the hours requirement, but it is a case-by-case -case basis and it is an area, a special area of IRS interest. So it's one of those things where if you, if you are interested in pursuing that and getting that kind of treatment, it's worth having a tax professional look over your specific sets your specific set of circumstances, because it really is case by case, whether it's, it's an appropriate treatment or not for you. Yeah. And the way I understand it and check me here, and I'm going to get a free uh, tax consulting lesson here is that real estate income is considered passive. And what you do when you take depreciation against passive income, um, you can actually get a loss, a net loss in most situations and some situations. You can't write that passive income off on active income if you have a W-2 per se after a certain income level. Is that, is that right? Like help coach me there on understanding that better. Yeah. So there's um, basically what it is, is if you have active participation in your real estate, if you're below certain income levels, you're able to deduct a, a certain uh, dollar figure. I think it's 25,000. Is that right, Skylar? 
It's twenty five thousand as long as you make only up to one hundred thousand dollars a year total, yeah. and then there's a phase out between one hundred and one hundred and fifty thousand as to the deductibility of those losses. Yeah. So for a lot of people, you know, they're gonna they're gonna beat out that phase out threshold pretty quickly, and so, um, you know, it and it really depends because for some people, if you have a lot of other passive income coming from other places having those passive losses and then having, you know, passive income that can be a better fit for you than trying to make that, that income active to offset, you know, so it, it's one of those things. It's a case by case basis. What's going to be better to modify your activity to try to get the better tax benefit. Yeah. And this is why I think it's key to work proactively with someone because the first time we were, I was talking before uh, we joined here, the first time I went to go file my taxes when I was involved in real estate, I'm like, man, I'm going to have so many passive losses, reduce my tax liability and all that kind of stuff. Yep. And then they saw I had phased out of that 150 mark. Mm-hmm. And all of a mm-hmm. sudden now I just have this big carry forward benefit that I mm-hmm. sometime in the future will be able to uh, uh, cash in on, but ultimately I'm giving the government a free loan mm-hmm. on my on the back of my money. So um I want to talk through now what I call the three benefits, the three Ds of uh, owning real estate from a tax perspective, and they are deduction, depreciation, and deferral. So Skylar, I'll start with you. What is an idea of a deduction and what are some common deductions that people could be looking at on their um, on their taxes for owning real estate? Sure. Um, usually uh, the deductions we see are all the deductions associated with the maintenance and operation of the property. So if you pay, you know, cleaners, if you pay for the property taxes, if you pay the the interest on the loan um, to to service the loan on the property, uh, if you pay bank fees, if you pay anything related to your travel costs, a check on the property, all of those are deductions. Um, So, you know, typically, you know, what we see is if you uh, recall seeing kind of a, a PL, maybe you have property management company, maybe you have, um, maybe you do it yourself, but on that profit and loss statement, most of those items on there that are expenses are going to be deductible for tax purposes. So that like mortgage interest, uh, property management, travel. Um, yep. I've also heard that there's this idea of CapEx versus OpEx that you can write off OpEx, but not CapEx. Can you talk us through a little bit of that? Well, that's not really a, a, a tax concept per se. The tax concept is more, um, you know, is this, is this expense? So first of all, is it a capitalizable expense or not? Um, and so, you know, that's step number one. And then once it is uh, identified as a capital expenditure, uh, so CapEx, then there's all sorts of ways, um, especially under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that you can actually take accelerated uh, depreciation on those items. Um, and so if you can think of like discrete, like HVAC units or other appliances or, you know, um, uh, certain improvements to the property that are that are not uh, structural in nature per se, you can, you can take a full write-off uh, in the form of accelerated depreciation for those. Um, and then OPEX, I assume, is just, you know, uh, in reference to kind of ongoing operational expenses. And so, yes, of course, you can, you can uh, pretty much always deduct those. Uh, but I would, I would not be so sure, you know, um, that CapEx or capitalized expenses, expenditures are not going to be, um, you know, treated favorably, especially under the current uh, regime that we have. Not only that, but you should also pay attention to the repairs and maintenance costs and um, the provisions that are called the safe harbor provisions related to those. It's too much to get into right now as far as the, the nitty gritty of what those you know, are in terms of how you qualify for those. But long story short, you can make capital, uh, what would normally be considered CapEx um, or capital expenditures and under certain thresholds, take a full write-off as if they were operating expenditures uh, if you meet certain requirements. So is a better way to think of it that OPEX can be written off in the current year and CapEx can be written off over a number of years on a depreciation cycle? Yes, and it, and it could be written off fully in the first year too. So just it's, it it's going to be written off. Yes, it just depends on the length of time, correct. Okay, so then let's go into depreciation. Um, Catherine, I guess I'll start with you. What is depreciation? Could you define it for us? And then how is it apply for real estate? 
Yeah. So depreciation is, I kind of mentioned it earlier with kicking off paper losses. Basically what it is when you purchase a property, the cost of that property is allocated between the building um, and then the land. And so for the land portion of it, that's, you know, you can't depreciate that because it, it's always going to, you know, the land's always going to be there. But what depreciation is, is it allows for you to take the the cost that's allocated to the building. So say like 80% or whatever, you know, you, we try to base it on what the assessed value is of the building itself. You're allowed to take that cost and allocate it over a certain number of years, depending on what type of building it is. So if it's a residential building, it's 27 and a half years. If it's a commercial building, it's 39 years. And so even though, um, you can be getting a net cash profit from the property. It can kick off a paper loss because very often that depreciation will be, that gets factored into how you, how they calculate what you pay the tax on. So it can be a really great benefit to have a, co- a positive cash flow from a, a piece of property. And yet you're not triggering any ex- extra tax from it. So that's, that's a big benefit that comes with a uh, you know, real estate owner. So I, let me try to throw out an example and check me here. Um, so I buy a property for $120,000. The land assesses for $20,000. So the property is $100,000. It's a residential property. So I divide that by 27 and a half. I think I get $3,600. If I earn income on that property of $3,000, then I show that I actually lost $600. Thus, I paid no taxes on that $3,000. Is that a good way to think about it? Yeah, that's that's a pretty fair um, basic, you know, understanding of it. I think the other thing too that you know Skyler mentioned is that buildings are also broken up into other pieces. And so I know on the show you've previously had people come on talk about cost segregation studies, and so that can be a wonderful planning technique for people where if you're in, you know, you meet that real estate professional status and you're in a really high income earning year or you know you're going to be in a high, you purchase a property this year and you know you're going to be higher earning next year. We wait until next year, but it's a way for you to be able to decide, okay, I want to take all this, this depreciation on this, on some of the components of this building now, because it's worth more because I'm in a higher earning year. That's a way that you can really, um, you can really save a lot in tax if you just can get the timing right on those and you meet the the requirements so that it doesn't all just kick off a passive loss that you can't take. So that's a, a technique that we use very often that can be very powerful for real estate investors. I think you just did a good job of, ser- of selling the idea of tax strategy, right? Is I'm having <laughs> a high income year this year, but next year is going to be more high income. Why don't we move this deduction here and carry it forward and all that sort of stuff versus, hey, it's April 10th. Here are my books. Tell me, tell me what kind mm-hmm. of magic you can work now. Um, yeah, because a lot of the techniques revolve around income smoothing and knowing, okay, here's what's going on with this particular client and what are they going to be doing for the next five years? What are the exit plans with these buildings? What's the what's the strategy that they have already? And then how can we line up what's going on on the tax side to really take the most advantage of what we already know is going to be happening? Yep. Yep. So anybody out there listening, I will save you lots of headaches for both your CPA and yourself by just saying it makes sense to have the conversation early and often. Um, so that was, dep- we talked about deduction. We talked about depreciation. Skylar, I'm going to come back to you. This idea of deferral um, and exchanges. Can you talk to us about that benefit and why it's, uh, why it's a benefit for real estate owners? Sure, absolutely. So there are many ways that you can defer taxes or, or, or defer the recognition of gain into future years. Um, the ones that are relevant, as you probably know, for real estate uh, are 1031 exchanges and then the use of qualified opportunity zones. Um, and what, what that means essentially is um, there are two concepts in, in the tax world. One is called um, realization. So you realize a gain in any given year, and then it's a separate question as to whether or not you recognize that gain as a taxable gain on your your income tax return in a given year. And so, for instance, for a 1031 exchange, the way it works is, say you bought a property for $100,000, five years later, uh, it's worth $400,000. Um, you want to take that equity and reinvest it into uh, another piece of investment real estate. You sell it. As long as you work with a qualified intermediary where 
from an escrow perspective, you never touch the funds personally, and it goes directly into that new property that you have identified. And there are qualifications for you know identifying it and timing, and et cetera. So you really do need to work with the CPA and a qualified intermediary for that. As never see a cent of that, it goes deferred. And so even though it was realized, you ca- you cashed out the equity, it is not recognized. So what that means is that in the future, that deferral will be recognized if you sell it in a non-1031 transaction. So the concept of basis, if you know you paid $100,000 for it, you know, your basis is basically that $100,000 less than the depreciation that you've taken over time. What a 1031 exchange does is it makes it so your basis stays the same, even though you've invested in this new property such that now, you know, this new property you bought for $400,000, say it goes up to $700,000. The deferral of that initial gain is built into the fact that you have a basis number still at that $100,000, give or take, level. And if you sell it for that 700,000 or what have you, what's your gain? It's 600,000. 600,000 being the first initial deferred gain of the 300 plus the next deferred gain, or the next gain of 300,000 since you bought the replacement property. So that's basically how deferrals work. And ideally, you could just keep kicking the can down the road such that you don't ever have to recognize it. Um, however, you know, sometimes it makes sense to, uh, but you just need to keep that in mind is that it's deferred. Um, and it's, it doesn't, it's still built into the the basis number of that property. Yeah. So essentially a 1031, you can take the capital gains. And as long as you do a qualified intermediary, you can move it into another property and just pump the tax bill down the road. And there's some legal structures around if it's in a trust or not a trust, um, if you could even pass that down to it through an inheritance and never have to pay it. What, can you define qualified intermediary for us as any CPA, any title company a qualified intermediary? How do we, how do we know if somebody is a qualified intermediary or not? Um, usually it's title companies. So CPAs are not generally uh, qualified intermediaries. Um, so, so the big title uh, companies will, will generally be people who facilitate these, but there are, um, there are qualified intermediaries that are smaller shops too, but really the CPA is there to ensure that all of the qualifications under the tax code are met. And then the intermediary is there primarily um, because they are, uh, acting as a facilitator for the exchange. They ensure that all of the uh, requirements are met with respect to you never touching the cash and it going directly uh, into this new property. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then last one on this, as you mentioned, opportunity zone. Um, can you define what an opportunity zone is and then um, help us understand some of the benefits there? Sure. Opportunity zones um, are a designation um, uh, and an investment program uh, that was created, again, going back to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act um, of 2017. Um, what they are is they are a form of deferral that can become a permanent tax savings if you uh, hold the uh, investment for long enough. So essentially what they are is, it, say you have a property, you want to sell it, you take all those capital gains and through a similar process of the 10, 1031 exchange, you invest it in a qualified opportunity zone or opportunity zone fund. If you hold that investment for 10 years, that capital gain not only is, is deferred, but it ultimately becomes, um, uh, you, you don't have to recognize it uh, ultimately. So really what they're trying to incentivize is they're trying to incentivize with the tax code investment in areas that are a little bit more downtrodden, maybe areas that need revitalization. And they're saying, we want people to put their money in these places and we want them to keep their money there. And so they're trying to incentivize that kind of uh, economic revitalization of these areas that you know maybe are a little bit lower income, maybe they uh, have fallen into disrepair, urban decay, et cetera. But there, there are places all over the country um, and you know, really there's some, there's some high quality places that are up and coming as well. Yeah. And I, I, I miss this trend. I wish I would have done that with the property that I sold earlier this year of essentially you can take that capital gains and move it into a depressed area that's been identified by the local governments as wanting investments. And as long as you keep that capital gain in there for a certain amount of time, I think it's 10 years, then you can never pay taxes on that capital gain. It's a huge benefit there. So 
Um, just a quick plug for that. Catherine, I want to come back to you because I've heard you talk a lot about the idea of having proper books and making sure that you're doing things the right way. Um, can you help us understand like, what does good look like? If I'm just getting into real estate, I have a couple of properties. How do I set myself up to have good conversations with my CPA to set them up for success? You know, I think the biggest, um, the biggest thing that I I've come back to over and over again with this question is it's, it's a good thing to just, you already want to have kind of a relationship going with a tax professional when you're starting these activities to make sure you're structuring them right. And how they're going to impact your, how the other places you earn income and, and making sure your projections are right. And I think it's worth having the conversation with them of how should I set up my chart of accounts? Uh, should I be working with a bookkeeper? Do I have enough activity going on that I should get a bookkeeper involved? Should I do this myself? You know, because I think there's a lot of people where I'll, I'll give a different answer depending on the person is, you know, if you're a really organized person and you love to tick and tie things and you want to pour hours and hours into learning how to do your own bookkeeping and you're meticulous with your records, then yeah, you probably can keep your own books and learning to use a piece of software like QuickBooks Online where it does automated bank feeds and things like that. If you're going to have a good time with that and that's going to be fun for you and you're, you know, you want to invest the time into that, then that's that's perfectly fine option. I think for most people if you're getting really if you want to get serious into real estate, learning I think one of the things that any person who's entrepreneurial needs to learn is um, delegating things that are not profit producing activities for you to someone who can do them more efficiently and do them correctly. So that really the amount of time that it would take for you to learn how to do your own books, spending that time on finding new properties, sharpening your skills, um, you know, landing deals, that sort of thing, that's going to serve you better. And if th those are the activities that you enjoy, you're going to have more fun doing that than trying to, you know, at seven o'clock at night on like April 10th, trying to figure out how to activate a QuickBooks online company account and, you know, converting all your bank statements into something that you're going to give to your accountant and they're going to be annoyed at you because it's not done correctly. So I think that's kind of a big decision that a lot of people need to make when they go into it is you know, how involved, how serious are you going to be with it, that it's worth paying a couple hundred bucks a month to have somebody do the books for you. And it's just out, you know, it's out of your hair uh, versus if you just genuinely enjoy it with some, some people that I've worked with in the past, they just, they get a kick out of doing their own books. They just love being in all the little details and finding every missing penny on a bank reconciliation. And that's fine. But uh, I think you do have to acknowledge that it's a little bit of a self-indulgent task. <laughs> Um, because you know, it, it isn't a profit producing activity. Um, so. Yeah. I like to come back to the concept of what's your highest and best use of time. And if exactly. it's not your best, highest and best use of time, then who, not how, um, yep. I can tell you my journey, the first year didn't even know what keeping the books were. The second year, my tax, uh, CPA said, send me your section E. And I said, what is that? The third year I tried to do it myself. And at this point I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to offload this to someone else because this is not where I add a ton of value. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, I think things too, like some of the, um, not to ding QuickBooks online or anything like that, but I think people don't realize that accounting is its own language in a way. And so you can think that you're doing it correctly because your bank is your bank account is reconciling and, you know, it looks right to you, but, um, it really, it really is its own language with its own jargon and its own format. And then especially tax, like it's really its own language and jargon that trying to like teach yourself French so that you can do these French translations. It's like, just hire a French person, like just have, <laughs> you know, yep. I think that's kind of the way, um, you know, I see that kind of being one of those first steps that people go through of when they, start doing like mastermind groups or they start getting really serious into the entrepreneur side of it that, yeah, you just have to focus on your best and highest use. And, and usually bookkeeping is not going to be that. So, yeah. And I feel like a lot of things with, um, taxes specifically, and maybe bookkeeping is the answer is it depends. So yeah. I'll throw the legal disclaimer out for both you two that while both Skylar and Catherine are CPAs, they are not your CPAs. Exactly. And your situation is going to differ based off of uh, whatever you've got going on in your life. And everything here is just educational in nature. 
But I, I think that's why I try to offload as much of this as possible because I could go watch a YouTube video and think I've got credits and debits down and all this kind of stuff. And now all of a sudden <laughs> it doesn't really apply to me. So um, I guess before we get into our fi final round here, any other tips or tricks for folks out there? Uh, I'll leave it open to both uh, Skylar and Catherine on things that people should be looking at to set them up for success here. Yeah. So what I was going to say is, especially for your audience uh, who's interested in real estate investing, um, I would really revisit with your CPA um, looking at um, uh, the designation of real estate professional, because that's a, that's a huge component of, um, of your tax benefit that you get from investing in real estate is unlocking these losses that can be basically, you know, financed by a lot of the debt that you that you do take on. And I know that you don't advise, you know, highly leveraged investments, which you know I agree with. And uh, but at the same time, uh, because you can you can uh, tap into what's called qualified non-recourse debt, which enables you to take losses against that debt. Uh, then you're really going to get the, the full benefit of that by ensuring that you check all the boxes for real estate professional designation. has nothing to do with real estate licensing. It's purely a tax concept. So you don't have to be a licensed real estate professional for that. Uh, but you do have to fulfill the requirements of the tax law for that designation on your tax return. And it's a year by year designation. So it's something that you should be talking about with your uh, tax professional every single year to ensure that you're above board with that and to ensure that you're maximizing um, any of those paper losses that that Catherine was talking about that are as a result of depreciation or other deductions that you may have available for you. So I would just really emphasize the importance of, of visiting that um, with your tax advisor. And, um, you know, that's kind of a specific one. And maybe Casey or uh, Catherine, you can get on uh, some more general advice as to tax planning. Yeah. And I, I think the, the main key from that point that I would echo is, you know, most, most CPAs, like we're not salespeople. And so we usually, ex I think for a lot of other practices, they expect the client to come to them with, Hey, I would like to do more work. I would like to have more advice. I would like you to be more of an advisor to me. And so really being your own advocate with whoever, you're, you know, if you have a good relationship with who you're working with and saying, hey, can we do a quarterly planning meeting or can we do a before the year end planning meeting so that I can understand what my tax exposure is going to be so I can understand if there's any more things that we can do or things that we need to change. And I think most, most professionals are open to that and they usually, you know, they expect the client to be the first mover there. So going to going back to your professional before the year's over. And because once it's history, we can't really do too much with it. There are some things that we can go backwards in, in the tax code, but for the most part, and especially within real estate, we can't go backwards once it happens. So going to that, going to that tax professional and, and asking about things like the real estate professional status, or, you know, if you're interested in doing 1031 exchanges, you know, how is that going to impact what's going on really coming to them and, and asking for more than just tax prep, because unless you communicate that need to them, most, most CPAs are just going to assume all you, all you're looking for is, is tax return compliance work and having that return filed. And so unless you ask for more, you're not going to get more. And I think that's kind of a, a key thing that I like to let people know. Yeah. Catherine, you have a, uh, uh, an incredible vision into my deepest and darkest mistakes I've made with taxes. Because <laughs> again, going back to my first year, I thought that was kind of standard that they were going to come mm -hmm. to me quarterly. And it, I agree yeah. with you, extreme ownership. If you don't own that, then no one's going to mm -hmm. own it for you. So um, great conversation. I want to shift this now into our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. And um, for simplicity, Catherine, we'll start with you and then go to Skylar. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Oh, I've, um, a book that I'm in the middle of that I'm really enjoying is Good to Great. Mm -hmm. um, I know that's a popular one, so I probably don't need to speak to it. One that I would say that causes a paradigm shift for a lot of clients that I've worked with is Profit First. Yep. Um, so a lot of people, I think that really changes their mind around, you have to be really intentional with your business model and intentional with the way that you're going to go about enterprises to really, um, make sure that you're structuring it profitable on the front end. You're intentional about that. So I would, I would give, I would give that one. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have never read that, but I've heard good things. Um, Skylar, how about you? One that was very influential for me is called uh, The Last Safe Investment. So, uh, and that one is by Michael Ellsberg and Brian Franklin. And really, that was a game changer in my mind because what the takeaways from that are is essentially your, your biggest investment is yourself and the quality of uh, your potential earnings. And that comes through relationships, that comes through knowledge, that comes from your self-discipline and practices. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have this, this scarcity mindset where they have to scrimp and save every last cent. Uh, whereas if you have the mindset, the last safe investment really is your quality as a human being, your ability to be uh, helpful and useful to other people, and your knowledge and self-discipline that can lead you to uh, ever expanding potential opportunities, that's a huge uh, change in, in a mindset. I, uh, I've never read that book, but when you said the last safe investment, I was like, I bet that answer is yourself. So uh, <laughs> I, I'll have to check that out. Um, our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things that you do every single day and the habits that you have. Catherine, what is something that you do every single day? Something that I've been doing recently that I've gotten a lot of fruit from is every night before I go to bed, I write down three things that I'm grateful for. And you would be surprised that the kind of mental energy shift you get from intentionally putting yourself in a gratitude state, I'm just shocked. Like I, cause I read studies about it and, but actually deploying it in my own life, I've found it to be just it's really changed my mindset and my energy and it's just the simplest thing is really being intentional about what you're grateful for in your life and the people and it really helps to permit like cement in your day what's important to you because those that's where it comes out is what you're grateful for um so that's that's one small thing that's like a very easy thing to add on to a nighttime routine that i've found to just have uh, a surprising uh, improvement for me. I'm smiling into ear to ear over here because I love that answer. Um, Skylar, how about you? Well, I'll just say, first of all, and this isn't going to be my one thing, but I, I will say I do require my kids to give their uh, three things they're grateful for at the dinner table every night. <laughs> so <laughs> hopefully that, that sticks as a habit. But yeah, one of the things that I've been doing lately that has been really um, great for me is I, I like to get out in nature and hike. And so every, every morning I've been going on, you know, a four to five mile hike, um, usually with a friend actually, and we'll just, you know, just kind of enjoy the the scenery. And, you know, I recently in the last year moved to uh, Idaho from California and it's just uh, happened to live in an area where I can be a 10 minute drive from, you know, great mountain trails. And, um, you know, I think that uh, 2020 really drove home how important that is, um, is, is to have that access to, to nature and to, uh, uh, the kind of freedom that affords. And, you know, I think it, it actually gives a huge amount of mental clarity. Um, I know you're a uh, long distance guy, triathlon, that sort of thing. But uh, for me, the, the hikes are, are incredible and you do get some good uh, cardio as well. I, I was laughing because Coeur d'Alene is on my bucket list and oh man, October, I bet it is gorgeous up there. Um, probably hard to get me up there in February, but it is definitely on the bucket list at some point. Um, our third one is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Catherine, we'll start with you. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? You know, it's funny. Uh, this probably isn't the best because I think, um, you know, some of the things that probably end up being so intrinsic for everyone, you just kind of take for granted at some point. But the most surprising piece of advice that ended up changing my life significantly was my original path professionally was I was interested in medicine and my parents were both tax professionals. And they told me on a whim to use an elective to take an accounting course. And that, and I was like, sure, fine, I'll do that. I've got an extra elective, I'll take it. And I just so completely fell in love with the field itself that um, it just totally changed the trajectory of my professional life and my personal life. And um, it's funny, like it was such an off, like off the cuff piece of advice from them and just really changed so much for me. So probably that I probably have a better, more, you know, substantial piece of advice somewhere, but I think that one was the most surprising that had kind of a butterfly effect. 
No, I'm laughing because I was having this conversation the other day around general education requirements in primary school. And everybody is always like, when's the last time you used trigonometry, algebra, read <laughs> Shakespeare and all that? And I'm like, that's not the point. The point is that you don't know what you have an interest to unless you're exposed to it. So I guess I would just flip that and say, for those of you out there that find no interest in a certain subject, maybe just go take a class on it for an hour to see if maybe there's an interest there, because who knows, you might go from being a doctor to a CPA if, uh, mm -hmm. if you end up loving it. Um, Skylar, how about you? What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? The best piece of advice I would say is to manage your expectations constantly. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that when I was younger, I, I was consistently being disappointed, whether it was from friends with friends or family or situations that were just outside of my control. And I think it all stemmed from not going into whatever endeavor I was engaging in with kind of eyes wide open with the, you know, uh, hope for hope for success, you know, um, prepare for failure mindset. And being okay with that, being okay with the fact that, you know, failure is not a bad thing, but, and, and don't be disappointed because, you know, it's always a possibility and you can always learn from it. Um, but, you know, managing your expectations really enables you to keep going and not get bogged down with disappointments that are inevitably going to come with life all the time. Yeah. There's some famous quote out there, like the most disappointment comes from failure to communicate and understand expectations. So I love it. I love it. Um, our fourth one is, what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? You know, I think the thing I'm most proud of is that I've been, I've been married now for uh, going on 16 years and, you know, married to my high school sweetheart. And, um, you know, it's been such a joy to see uh, our marriage grow over the years and, you know, had a bunch of kids and, um with how the state of relationships are these days and marriages, I just count myself uh, extremely grateful um, for uh, the, the marriage that I do have. And so, um, you know, that's, that's a joint effort. You know, it's, it's a joint project. You have to have a common understanding uh, between the spouses that you're in this for the long haul, you're in it together. And that, you know, this is a invaluable thing if it, lasts. And I believe that in most cases, uh, it can last. And again, it's about managing expectations and communication um, because you will face disappointment and, you know, miscommunication and all those things, but they just need to be constantly worked on. And uh, it's uh, ultimately a way more rewarding thing to be on the other end of those maybe challenging times and trials, um, but, you know, stronger because of it. Yeah, I can uh, barely stand myself for 16 years. So uh, <laughs> congratulations there. <laughs> Catherine, had time to well, think of it. What you yeah, got? Yeah, I have, I have a more superficial one because I think for most of the, the things that are the best things in my life, I don't attribute them to myself. Um, so I think for a more superficial one, something that I was really, I was really proud of that happened was during the pandemic, I had a client um, who was a solo entrepreneur running a very small operation. And he basically had to shut down his whole operation because, uh, he didn't have childcare for his kids and his wife was pregnant at the same time. And so they were very, um, very concerned with COVID. And so he had to stop working because, uh, he had, he was an IT professional, but he worked in nursing homes. And so I remember being on the phone with him and he, he was saying to me, I don't know how I'm going to make my mortgage payment. He's, I'm, he was like, I, like, I haven't been working for like a month or two now and I don't see myself being able to go back to work. Like, what am I going to do? And so kind of walking him through, like we got him the PPP funding, we got him on unemployment. Um, and then we were able to do some other tax planning items for him. He was able to know how he was going to pay his mortgage. Like we more than made up what the mortgage payment was with what we were able to do for the aid. And just for me, like the talking to him after we had done all the planning work and just the relief that was in his voice, like I could hear the difference between that first conversation of like, I don't know how I'm going to make it versus like, we're going to be okay. And I think for me, that really struck home because like I said, I wanted to go into medicine. Like, I think for me, it was so important that whatever the work I was doing was really serving people in meaningful ways. And sometimes when it revolves around things like wealth, 
you know, that doesn't directly tap into somebody's, um, you know, well-being. Like it doesn't directly um, really provide that personal transformation the way that it did for this one client where it was, you know, this was the difference between, it was, you know, it was one of those things where it had such a, it was such a small dollar figure compared to a lot of the work that we do, but just the emotional impact that it had in his life it made me really proud. Like, yeah, I'm glad I spent the time learning how to do this stuff and learning how to file these forms and learning how to do all this because it made a difference for this one person um, in a really significant way. And it was through me putting the effort into developing these skills that we were able to do that. Um, I think that's, that's probably one of the more proud things that, I don't know, that's more superficial than I think Skylar's answer, but that's the the first thing that comes to mind for me. I don't know. All I hear is accountant can find money anywhere as long as you get the good <laughs> ones. Um, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? I know the answer on that one. If you All want right. me to go first. Yeah, you go um, first. Go I had it. a really, I had a really close relationship with my grandmother growing up. Um, and so I, for, uh, for me, it's just a very close personal family relationship. And so I think for, for her, I would really, uh, I would love to have a bowl of ice cream with her again someday. How about you, Skylar? I'm kind of a, you know, uh, history nerd and uh, really enjoy studying um, some, some eras of, of great transformation. And so one of, the, one of the people that I think would be really interesting to talk to is uh, Pericles. Um, Pericles, for those who don't know, is uh, an Athenian statesman who basically lived through the uh, transformation of Athens into an empire, the defeat of the Persian, huge invasion of Greece, you know, through uh, rallying the Greek city-states together, and then unfortunately was part of the uh, imperial decline of the city of Athens later. And so uh, really a man who lived his life in full and saw, you know, the the heights of victory and the bitterness of defeat. And I would want to sit down with him and say, you know, what did you learn from all that? I think that would be really interesting. That is the deepest answer we've gotten so far. <laughs> and you have just given me a Wikipedia rabbit hole to go down this evening. So thank you for that. Um, well, this is fantastic. We didn't even get into the real estate professional status, what that means, how people can qualify for it, some of the loopholes around maybe having some short-term rentals to actually qualify for it as well if you have a W-2. Um, so we'll have to have you both back on soon. But if our listeners wanted to reach out and learn more about you and your services, where's the best place we could send them? And I'll direct that to you, Catherine. Yeah. So we're if you want to reach out directly to have a conversation about your situation, our website is Dominion es.com. Um, and that'll, I'm assuming being the show notes. Yes. Uh, the other place too, that's good to connect with us is on LinkedIn. Um, I think we're both pretty active on LinkedIn and post updates with things like different podcasts that we're on, what's going on with tax reform and different areas of interest for the, you know, people who follow us and clients, uh, through there. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I can't wait to have you guys back on soon. Thank you so much, Matt. It was such a pleasure. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.